The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. Today we bring you part one in a two-part interview between Griffin Barber and John Ringo and Lydia Scherer, who are the co-authors of the new novel, Through the Storm, a sequel to Into the Real, set in the Transdimensional Hunter series. Let's take a listen. Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bane Free Radio Hour. Best known for her urban fantasy series and its spinoff, Love, Lies, and Hocus Pocus, Lydia Scherer has authored a plethora of volumes in that cozy fantasy adventure series thus far. She's also written an epic fantasy and a number of short stories before joining forces with John Ringo to create the world of the Transdimensional Hunter series. John is the author of several new New York Times best-selling series, ranging from near-future zombie post-apocalyptic survival and reconstruction, to Far Future Warfare series. He's also collaborated with some of the most popular authors in the genre on hit series. He's continuing his habit of smash collaborations by co-authoring with Lydia Scherer, the game-lit novel Through the Storm, the sequel to the excellent Into the Real from Bain Books. Hello and welcome, Lydia and John. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right, so hardest questions first. What is the coolest aspect of Through the Storm for each of you? John has to go first. No, John has to go first. I think it's the growth in the main character. Uh, that's always something that you look for in, in any story along these lines. This is a building from it, a coming of age story. And the main character starts off in Into the Real as a pretty introverted <coughs> very serious gamer but she won't even use her own herself online she uses an altered male personality um and in this book she has to start to deal with people knowing who she is and dealing with fame and reaching out into a broader world and actually kind of learning how to be an adult dealing with all of that when she starts off as a fairly childlike individual um and so that's that's the aspect that i think from a character perspective is the best uh the world building in it which is like entirely lydia okay it's 100 lydia um is also really good as you start to get into a lot of the uh there's a lot of stuff about how they're how many problems they have with social media in this near future environment and the laws which have occurred. Um, one of the things that's come up recently in is an issue is a deep fake form. Um, there have been a couple of what they call Twitch hotties that people have deep faked uh, porn about them. And it's, so accurate that it's like impossible to tell that it's not them. Right. And so one of the things is that there's there's a law against it, that it's a felony to take somebody's likeness and use pornography. Um, so it that aspect of the world building very much Lydia, and it was very very well done. 
Um, so don't say no, it wasn't me. Yes, it was. I didn't. Was I said, there's going to be some changes. You like wrote all of that. So take full credit for it. Okay, Lydia, what's your thoughts? Um, so I, it's kind of hilarious that I, that I feel this way and yet I'm writing the series, but I've never been a fan of teenage angst. Uh, I never really enjoyed write, uh, reading books with teenage angst in it. Uh, in the Harry Potter series, my least favorite book was book five when Harry is just so, he's just such a, he's just such a butthead. Um, and I just hated it. Like I, I love the story so much, but I just hated Harry and I was very, very annoyed with him. And so there are certainly times when I'm very annoyed with Lynn. Uh, and of course I'm writing Lynn. So it's like, hard writing someone that you're annoyed with and then also annoyed at some of the other, other characters for even I mean, they're teenagers and honestly for teenagers these guys are pretty like pretty decent like they're pretty well adjusted for an average teenager um but uh you know i grew up homeschooled and so i was always like outside the the crowd or outside um like not even in school in the out group i was outside of everything because right. i was homeschooled and so all of the clicks and the like the things that high schoolers like are pretty normal for them. I was very, very glad to skip all of that. And I had to explain to. some of those things to her as we've been writing it. Yes. Yeah. And the problem is I graduated in 1981. It right. has changed. Yes. Yes. Quite a bit. Um, so, so that asked like all of that is something that, you know, I try to do my best to write the best story I possibly can, but it's not stuff that I enjoy about the story. So while I do really enjoy Lynn's character progression, it's very satisfying. Um, honestly, my favorite thing is some of the older characters in the background, uh, the, uh, some of, you know, more of the adults. So uh, Lynn's mom, Matilda is a whole lot of fun to write. Um, and I was John just going to say, I was just going to say when you said about the, you didn't enjoy the, all the teenage angst, it must have been refreshing them to go, okay, mom comes in and she gives them the, the rational side yeah. of like this. Will yeah. pass well, and, it's Matilda yeah. and Steve. Steve right. is probably my favorite character to write because Steve is the mature voice of reason, the mature, no nonsense voice of reason that kind of helps Lynn see the world um, as it is. And also helps her to step outside of herself a little bit and act in a professional way. Um, and Steve helps her see that. Uh, but I also really enjoyed in book two and through the storm, getting to add in some of Robert Crater and Derek Peterson's point of view. You only really see kind of at the end of the novel, like just kind of a little bit, but you're gonna get to see more of all three of those background characters in books three and four, um, more four especially. Um, and I was just talking to a fan today, uh, John, by the way, your fans have informed me to tell you that you're missing out on this book signing tour and that they really miss you and said you should have gone on tour with me. So we did a book signing at Books on the Bosky here in Albuquerque today. And there was about 20, 25 people here and they were like, where's John? Where's John? Where's John? John? Yeah. John, is, John is in his prison cell. They, they won't let him out. Uh, that, that, that's where John is. You know, you're hiding, I think, from the world because the world can be awful. Uh, though I don't know what this, yeah, oh, yeah, it's very easy to get tired of. Um, so Griffin, so just to wrap up I, your question, what I did use to do signings, yeah, well, okay, go ahead and wrap up. The question. Well, I was just Talk gonna about. say, I, I probably my favorite aspect is writing like Steve 
Steve Riker and Derek Peterson and, and Robert Craterson, like the more mature, more mature voices. You don't get to see a whole lot of, but you don't need to see a lot of them to just get right. those nice doses of like, ah, oh, maturity. This is so nice. Well, and the, the neat thing about uh, uh, Steve in particular is that he's got a foot in the adult world yeah. and the gaming world yeah. and the, the secret world. And yeah. you know, so he like, he crosses all the bridges yeah. in one character, which is pretty yeah. cool to have. Uh, I would like to see him maybe in a in a future one. I, maybe he loses. His have stuff. you have you read Operation Molstrol? Did you no, hear about that? Okay, no. so I did a short story that's actually a prequel to the first book. Um, it's called Operation Molstrol. It's like I don't know, three thousand, four thousand. No, no, no. It's more than that. It's like seven, six, seven thousand words, and it's on the Bain website for free to read for anyone. Oh, you cool. just go to the Bain website and just search for Operation Molstrol. Um, and it's just in just pasted as like a, a web page. You can read the whole thing. Um, and it's got Steve in it. Steve's actually fighting like as a TD hunter in it. So you might, you might enjoy reading that. John, did you get a chance to read that? I'm pretty sure I sent a copy to you. I copied you when I sent it to Tony. I did not see that. Okay. I can totally forward it to you again. Cause it was kind of last minute. Tony was like, Hey, you know, why don't you write a short story, you know, to kind of promote the release and stuff. Um, and they just posted it for free on their website. But John, what were you saying about book signings that you used to do? Well, when I used to do book signings, he used to be during the John Rigo Book of the Month period. Oh. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I've done a, a signing since like 2007, 2008. Um, yeah, we, we met on one of your last ones for, uh, I think it was for the uh, uh, Ghost series, I think was when you first came out. Uh, yeah. When I, we first met in San Francisco. Yeah. Boy, um, you did book it? signings for Ghost? Oh, yeah. And you oh, had yeah. to face people knowing that they had read that book? Yes, I did. And yeah. they're sticky and they're clammy hands. And they're clammy hands. That was actually when Mary and I were first dating. Um, and well, separate story, but I'm I'm at an university bookstore at in Seattle. And this is back in the flip phone days, right? So I East Coast signings and West Coast signings are, are interestingly different. East Coast signings, you just sit at a table and people come up and you sign books. Um West Coast signings, you do an hour of beat the author, or you know, you talk about something and then you sign. Um, I think West Coast signings are, are, are better that way. Um, but some authors don't like public speaking, so they don't like that. Um, I expect the West Coast difference probably comes out of LA, which is more narcissistic, right? So they're going to want to talk about themselves, right? Yeah. Uh, and anyway, I. The University Bookstore story. I was doing my ethiopic thing and my phone buzzes and I kind of look at it. And I go, hang on a second, it's my new girlfriend. It's a text message. So I, I, I got to pick this up. And I look at it and he goes, and, and it's Miriam sends me this text. I'm getting a boob job. <laughs> and I said, apparently she's getting a boob job. <laughs> and now you know why I love her. <laughs> but she had been waiting for silicon back on the market um or to be 35 whichever way and she was 35 and silicon came back on the market when she hit 35 and she's like i'm getting good job. but that i think it was that signing tour the signing tour after i just got to the point that i go okay who's got the crate and there would be some guy that would sheepishly raise his hand and he would have like all the john rigo books to sign and those are the fun signing tours. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Who's got the crate? And then you have yeah. like two milk crates full of books, all hardcover. And I'd say, I love you very much. Thank you. Um, you know, I appreciate that that some people just buy these things. Just we've got to get the next book. Yeah. I used yeah. to be that guy, but I didn't have the money to buy hardcovers. So I have to oh, wait yeah. for the paperback. Yeah. Um, but uh, so yeah, I haven't done a book signing in. I haven't traveled it. So, yeah. So uh, getting back to the the story at hand. Yeah. Uh, which character of Through the Storm kind of surprised you? Ooh, lots of dead air. Well, so I'm trying to decide. I'm trying to decide between two. So. I mean, I will say that I still didn't know, even starting book two. So John and I like went over the outline that we agreed on together and, you know, we kind of plotted it out some. And there was a bit of a question about whether, who was going to be the bad guy in book two. If it was going to be Elena or if it was going to be Connor. Um, And like even starting book two, I was still on the fence about that. I was kind of on the fence, like who... Like who to cast in the main villain role or or something like that. Like right. and Connor surprised me. Like as as I was writing him, I really didn't know where it was gonna go while he I was. He just got writing uglier him. and uglier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. it's it was very interesting. Yeah, I would say that Connor surprised me. Yeah, the the not in a good way. Like no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, or in a perfect way for the story, but yeah. Yes, for the story it was yeah, a good way, right. not for him. And uh, I think he, we see him in the uh, uh, into the real as a rival team leader. Really, you know, Elena's uh, just the figurehead, and she mm-hmm. insists that you know he runs it. Um, but is that how he kind of came to be? You just decided that okay, now it's time to pick him up and and bring him in, and uh, as a, a, a more they brought Connor in as a character who was based on an emesis in second high school, um, who was actually a member of the Swim Team. Um, and I didn't really tell Lydia that. Lydia kind of took the character and ran with Connor. But uh, that Elena-Connor dynamic was something I actually had to deal with in the second high school. And at a certain point, I just blew them off because I was just... There's 4,000 students in this school, and you're two of the least interested. <laughs> Leave me alone. And after a bit, they did because we weren't even the same classes. You know? So it was just go back over to your jock table, right? There was the jock. My high school in the cafeteria, cafeteria had to take 2,000 kids at the time, two, two periods, right? Um, and it was the jock pack, the end crowd, and over on this side towards the doors was the dirt curtain. Um, and then gearheads were over there. The narcotic squad was over there. <laughs> um, and there were the band campers and the, the drama queens and the muddled middle, right? And everybody had their little area that they defended. And God forbid that a nerd herd sit anywhere near the jock pack or the in crowd, right? Um, oh, I forgot about the surf dudes. We had, we had the surf dudes. The surfer dudes were right between the gearheads and their cottage squad because they generally were kind of floating back and forth between the two, but they were the surfer dudes. 
because um, because it was in Orlando. It was Winter Park. Um, and Winter Park, huh? I was saying that sounds a lot like what my husband describes high school as. He went to public high school, and it just makes me glad that I skipped all that. I love being homeschooled. Oh yeah, um, but you, you gotta understand, Winter Park it was actually a fantastic school. Um, it was very cliquish, but every high school is cliquish. I had uh, I had a weird weird experience because mine was split between uh, Middle America public school and then uh, an international school in Geneva, Switzerland. So. I, well, I get what you're saying as far as the mine was split between a an 800 person Catholic school in Atlanta, where everybody was scattered all over Atlanta, and um, it was very very cliquish, but it was so small that I was in a clique of one. <laughs> and there was one person that I spoke to socially at that school, like for for two years. That was it, because I was in a clique of one. And that was Mary Ann Peak, and Mary Ann Peak was friends with everybody. And it went from an 800 person school to a school that the graduating class was 823. Right. Yeah. Big difference. <laughs> that was the size of a community college that the neighborhood it was in, Winter Park, had more had more millionaires, and this was back in the early 80s had more millionaires per square mile than anywhere else in the eastern United States. Wow. The only place that exceeded it in the United States was Beverly Hills. Oh, wow. Which <laughs> do, we know, do we know the name of the high school and in, in, uh, through the... Uh, oh, um, I... I mean, it's like Cedar Rapids. It's like Cedar Rapids Public High or something like that. I don't yeah, know it's that like, I... It's Cedar Rapids High School. I mean. Yeah, high yeah. school. I, but, I don't I, think I, I've... Stated it in the book necessarily, but it's right. in my 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 world building bible or whatever. Right, right. The reason why I ask is because with John talking about this very large school that he was at, you know, it's it, and it also draw in the smaller school where it draws from all these other different places, which is how everybody gets to school in person in the world of uh, transdimensional hunters. So yeah. that's pretty cool that it's uh, you have crossed over. Yeah, this background of uh, of how it kind of came about. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so just like in the first novel, Into the Real, I thoroughly enjoyed the ride inside the head of your protagonist, Lynn Raven. Uh, she seems a well-grounded and thoughtful young woman, despite or maybe because of a tough history as an early teen. In this novel, we get to root, around, root for Lynn as she struggles not only with the TDMs of the HD Hunter world, but with some very tough life questions, including dating, forgiveness, leadership and second chances. Uh, was this something you planned while plotting the series or something that arose naturally while writing this particular book? Um, some of it was certainly plotted beforehand, but it was more along the lines of these are the sorts of things that young people have to learn um, growing up. Um, so, for instance, <laughs> I wasn't planning on any sort of romantic arc. Uh, good or Tony was like there needs to be more romance <laughs> or or at least like it wasn't something that felt integral to the main storyline and I, I wouldn't have you know been compelled by the story to, to put it in um, you know apart from the main storyline but as Tony is an extremely good editor some might say the best one out there um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, she's very correct in that there's romance in real life, 
a lot of high schools go through those things. And as adults, we can remember going through those experiences in high school. You know, it's perfectly valid to have that sort of thing in. Um, but, you know, especially, you know, questions of dating, like who to trust uh, with, you know, being vulnerable to, um, learning how to work as a team. I mean, those are natural parts of Lynn's progression um, to get her to a place where she could be, you know, in the final book and in the final part of her arc, the responsible leader that she needs to be to get done what she needs to get done, which I won't specify because you got to read the books. But one of the things that was built in from the beginning, though, is and my brain is shutting down the Samoan kid, uh, Lydia. The name, name, Lydia. Oh, Edgar Johnson. Johnson. Um, one of the things that was built in from the beginning, it was Lynn not being able to recognize that Edgar is in love with her. Yeah. Right. <laughs> she's just clueless to it. Oh, she's um, totally clueless about all romance. Like, she's like, what is well, going on? But it's just so obvious that the reason that Edgar is always on her side, always has her back, everything else is that he's in love with her. Right. Um, and Edgar is not somebody to express something like that's also built in. That was built that that the the love triangle between Lynn, Edgar, and unknown male third being Connor in this more, book. More like rival. I guess love triangle is a love rivalry. Uh, yeah, I, I guess the rivalry. No, it, it's love triangle. Okay. It, it's, okay. That's that's a love triangle. Lydia, <laughs> I understand that you haven't done this a lot, but that's actually a love triangle. Is, I'm, is I'm where thinking of reverse. Aram, which is completely different in every way. Yes, but. yes. <laughs> um, but uh, that was built in from the beginning. Cool. Um, and again, based on personal experience, you know, being the guy that is, you're just the friend is the most annoying thing in the world. Um, and I wanted to build that in for all of the guys out there who are the friend and does edgar ever eventually become more than a friend as in you know is the ending she and edgar get together read and find out right yep so uh was it a challenge to get it into lynn's headspace uh or did it kind of come naturally to um, I would say it came pretty naturally once I got started. It's one of the things that um, I, and you know, I'm sure John could say the same thing or something similar. You just kind of train yourself. You've got certain points, uh, character points, like, hey, like these are the touchstones of who Lynn is and her motivations um, and why she makes the decisions that she makes. For me personally, I also rely very heavily on music. Um, to get into people's heads. So there are certain songs or soundtracks that get me um, in the headspace of the story. And I also usually reread what I have. I sent you a I've... bunch of songs, didn't I? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you did. Absolutely. Because the, the theme for this is actually Whispers in the Dark by Skillet. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm I... a huge fan of Skillet. Yeah. That was, I, I have a ton, not, Book two as well, but book one specifically, I listened to a ton of Skillet music. Book um, three, I think the actual thing for it is Surviving the Game by Skillet. Well, yes, and actually that was floated as a potential title for one of the books. I'm not sure if we're going to end up using it as a title, so we'll see. That would be a good one for the next one. Yeah. Because that, when you when you look at what we talked about plotting out the next one, because that mm -hmm. one's first, I'll go ahead and say it's partially finished. 
Yeah, well, I've certainly written part of it um, um, since well, it became yeah. the Bane trilogy. Um, can I talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. When we, we plotted out how this book should go, and there was a lot of stuff that went on in between. Um, and, of course, because I curl up into a ball and, and sob in the corner all the time, um, it was sometimes difficult for Lydia to get a hold of And that's something that I will just really, you know, I deal with depression. And I sit in the gray room all the time, which doesn't help with depression. Um, but uh, when we were done, and Lydia at one point was screaming at me over text, and that actually got me out of, yeah, you were. It was it was all caps. Um, and, I use all caps for emphasis because italics is not available in text. Um, and and it, she actually kicked me out of, uh, of some stuff. It was, it was helpful. It was. Um, I would be happy to yell at you again anytime you need me to, John. Well, okay. I, I, I love the fact that, you know, part of the origin of this whole series is the last thing that kind of got you out and about was, you know, the, the, uh, Pokemon go, Pokemon go. Yeah. Right. That was like, uh, everybody was astounded. Like, wait, John is actually having sunlight touch him. Yes. Yes. I had sunlight touch me and, uh, the day it started burns. I learned that you could play Pokemon go at night. Oh. Unfortunately, I live in a, I live in the ghetto. Um, so playing anywhere nearby was a bad idea. Thank you. No, I'm not buying drugs. Um, <laughs> well, you must be a narc then. No, I'm a bootlegger. I, I, I do alcohol, not drugs. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, you look like one. Uh, <laughs> you could be making like, some moonshine down there in your basement. I, I, I make a, that. I live in a fairly nice uh, working class neighborhood that is completely surrounded by the hood, such as, you know, Chattanooga's version of the hood. Okay, um, but anyway, the sec the next book, which I think should be called Surviving Man, um, we had worked out how this book should go, and Lydia did a wonderful job, and she shouted at me, and I actually did some of the writing I was supposed to do, and then I started writing another book because I had it in my head, and I just went ahead and wrote it, and Tony didn't like it because it was just a guy going fishing all the time. Um, so there had to be angst in it. Um, anyway, so Lydia sent me the book, and I read the book, and it's fantastic. And it's like, you know, you know, anything that you need to change, and I'm like, comma here, comma there. Please understand, I have dealt with an awful lot of junior authors that I spent book after book after book just getting them to where they could write prose and dialogue. I will not say who they are. Um, I've gotten books turned in that it was, this, there's no way to fix it. Um, I had a book turned into me that was way over deadline. It had to go to the printers in a week. That was a week to make it to be able to publish. That was so bad. I went up to my father-in-law's cabin and spent of that week five days cutting 75,000 words and writing 65,000 to make it readable. You have to tell okay. me who that was off screen some other time. Yeah, no, yeah, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to say that on screen. We're not going to say which book it was. Um, but 
So these are the sort of things that I have had to deal with with junior office. Lydia has had to deal with a clinically depressed senior author um, who occasionally does not respond very well to emails. Or occasionally? Text. Excuse me. All the time. All or the text. time. Or text. Or phone calls. Or anything. Or Sometimes actually driving to, down here and kicking in my door with a shotgun and no, saying, Yeah, but she's had to deal with a little. But I read this book and it's fantastic. So, uh, so I read, the, hang on, I read this book and it's fantastic and it has a fantastic ending. And then it keeps going. <laughs> And going and going and going and going and going, going and going. You know the the uh, the Return of the King. You know how half of the book is after the end of the book. Yeah. So I said, Lydia, this is a fantastic book. It really is. You did a fantastic job, and I think that my additions were useful. Um, the problem is that it ends. Two thirds of the way through the book, it's a fantastic ending. Well, we talked about this. I said, Yeah, this is two books. Um, so what we did was we just cut the end off the book. Right. So a significant portion of the next book is already written. Yeah. Plus, the additional stuff that she put on that was after it was essentially a sketch outline of an entire freaking book. Right. Um, so we're it's book three should not be too hard to get done because a good portion of it's already done. So yeah, at this point, I think if I went back and I just looked at what was after it, you know, I'm not doing anything. I might just write it while she's writing her own series. You know, oh just... please, John, please do that. Do that. If your muse wants Don't threaten Lydia please. with an easy time. No, no, no. Please, John, I am begging you, do that. Don't even say anything to me. Just do it. Yeah. I would and love for you to do that. I have to remember Please. all the character names. Hey, I'm tonight, <laughs> I'm going to send you my world-building Bible with all of the information, okay? Tonight, I'm sending it to you. So you have no excuses. You You're going to have all of it. right now. <laughs> you have all of it, all the characters, all their bios, all their dossiers, all that the TDs. That would be very useful. Yes, I will send it to you tonight. Okay. So... Uh, speaking of which, uh, of, of former creative uh, things you've done, John, uh, your novel Into the Looking Glass is similar in many ways to Transdimensional Hunter books. Um, how did that previous novel inspire your story planning and world building for this one? I saw that and I'm like, maybe no, that's similar not. in many ways, a similar in a couple ways. I, I, I loved Into the Looking Glass and Correct. it made me think of more the idea that you sent me that 40,000 words that you first sent me. Um, and then we had a long conversation about your plans for the aliens and the world building behind it and the technology behind it. And I'm like, man, this really reminds me of one of your other books. So <laughs> did they affect you? I really, really don't. Oh, okay. um, uh, Whenever I mention this book, people are like, wait a minute, you mean through the looking glass? I'm like, no, it's not quite like that one. So maybe in the minds of your readers then, John. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I am a John Ringo reader and have there been since I was like 14, 
Now, I didn't read Ghost at 14. How, how so. young you are. <laughs> did you just say you read Ghost at 14? No, I said I did not. Good <laughs> Lord, John. I said I did not. I said I did not read Ghost at 14. I, I'm just saying, I thought you said I read Ghost at 14. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, my first John Ringo books were the Prince Roger series with David Weber because I started out reading all the Honor Harrington stuff and then was looking for more David Weber stuff and saw that series got totally enamored with that was like hey who's this John Ringo guy let's let's yeah. go find more by him big so. pocking wrench time oh my big gosh I love wrench. that the big pocking wrench so uh well then we'll move from that to jamal swain kayla's stepfather is the ceo of a major pr company and he plays kind of a pivotal role in the uh, helping lynn to overcome that uh the the fame aspect of it or at least to deal with the uh what she has to um in the books uh where did the idea for that character come from and uh what are your thoughts on uh, where social media is going uh, in the near future Anyone who is a who becomes a really major influencer is the, the term that they use. Somebody who is uh, really out there, and their their face is out there, their likeness is out there. They're they're being asked for, uh, as the song says, and the papers want to know who shirts you. Um, need somebody who knows how to do that. Um, just as they need, they need an accountant, they need an attorney, they need a financial manager, and they need a publicist. Right. Okay, you need those things. It's not like Larry Korea can do all of his own accounting because he is a freaking accountant. Otherwise, get an accountant. Right. Um, and, and, and the funny thing is, Larry has an accountant, and he's a CPA. Yeah, because he doesn't uh, want to be doing that all the time. Because he doesn't want to be the guy having to keep up with all of the changes in, in the tax code this week. Yep. Um, so, but you need a person like that. Um, and Lynn came from a background that, that didn't have anything to do with that and didn't realize that she needed somebody like that until she had that person. And it's suddenly like, oh my God, the, the weight is off my shoulders. You know, this person can take so much, can't take everything away, can't take all the problems away. We're speaking of the IRS, um, but can take almost all of the problems away. Um, and it's just, it's such a relief when you've got that. And that was one of the things that I wanted to build in for people who happen to become an internet influencer or a podcast or something like that. If you think you can handle it all, think again. Right. Uh, Joe Rogan has an accountant. Joe Rogan has a financial manager, has has attorneys by the slew, given it's Joe Rogan, um, right? right? You can't do all of that yourself, so don't even try, was one of the things I wanted to explain. Now, the character himself, Jamal Swain, is a fantastic character. I had actually kind of thought about writing that portion myself, Um Lydia wrote it, and she said, you know, blah, blah, was so far off from the character that I planned, as we, as I said at one point, that it was like, go for it. Because it was just, um, the character I had in mind was actually based on my company commander, my favorite company commander when I was in, who, um, he reminded me of a young Dwight Eisenhower. 
He was this little short, blonde, balding guy with blue eyes from Ohio um, who had a fantastic demeanor with his troops. He, he was, he was uh, as tough as he had to be, as firm as he had to be. But in general was, you know, he had your back. Um, we had a horrible battalion commander at one point, and he always had her back with the battalion commander. Um, and he just had this really calm demeanor right up until you got into battle. And then all of a sudden, it was like the horns came out. And, and he, was, he was fantastic. Um, and so that was who I had. And, and it turns, and at one point I said, you know, you went Rotsia, you know, do you have a military history degree? He goes, no, Mark. Um, <laughs> marketing. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a marketing degree, and he's a fantastic infantry commander. Um, so that was who I had in mind, and uh, I was dealing with a really bad bout of depression during the time. And Lydia did have to take a lot of stuff that I should handle. Thank you, Lydia. Thank you. Um, but you know, I the book came in. I'm reading this character, and I'm like. This character is so far away from Bob Brantley <laughs> that it's like, you did a great job, Lydia, which you did. It's fantastic. He's a fantastic character. Oh. Just way off from where I was at. Yeah, yeah. But I can always use Bob Brantley someplace else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in um, somewhat in book three and mainly in book four, um, we're definitely going to need a lot more um, military heavy characters. Oh, I'm, and... I'm thinking more in Beyond the Ranges, to be honest. Oh, okay, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've already got a slot for him in Beyond the Rangers. Um, and, uh, I actually stole, um, actually stole, you, you both know, yeah, of course you know who Bill Fawcett is. Yeah. Yep. Um, I actually stole, sort of stole Bill Fawcett for one of the characters that's in Beyond the Rangers, Gil Gould. Um, Tim and Gil Hool, and he goes by Gil, um, because he hates Tim. Because he's short, and he was always short. <laughs> so you know why he hates Tim. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, it, completely different book. I, I ended up with three Tims, and I have no idea how I did that. Anyway, continuing on, next question. <laughs> so without going too deep into spoiler land, was there anyone in particular, fictional or otherwise, who inspired the character of Connor? I think I already well, I mean, covered that. John's already, John's already yeah, on the swim family. team when I was in high school. Okay. So I, I didn't quite hear that he was on the swim team. I, I got that now. Yeah, a guy who was on the swim team in high school. And, and so he's the... No, he wasn't more as swim. bad as Connor. He was just your standard jock. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, stereotyp stereotypical jock dick one inch. Like, you know... Well, I was a swimmer, so I don't know, man. <laughs> No, actually, I I thought about I thought about naming Griffin Barber. Yeah, but <laughs> so the name was too long, though, right? Name was too long. Um, but I was in my first class, the first semester that I was at Winter Park, because I talked about Winter Park before. Um, I was my first class of the day was swimming. It was it was a uh, lifeguard class, and it was a crib class for the swim team, and that's where I got the high school nickname of Thick. 
um, from the Winter Park swim. Uh, Winter Park produced silver and gold medalists for the Olympics. Um, and uh, so, you know, these guys called me fish. Um, you know, every morning we sit there in the bleachers and the coach would go, okay, we're going to be doing side stroke today. And, you know, this is how you do it, blah, 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 blah. Okay, everybody into the, and before you say the word pool, there was this whoosh, like an otter, and fish was in the water because it was, I'm in the water. And now I am in a prison cell. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was one of the guys on the swim team. And for some reason, he just decided he was going to F with the fish. I'm not too sure which language we're allowed to use on this podcast. Um, and there was a female that was associated with him. Whose name, I don't remember either one of their names. Um, who wasn't a cheerleader, but she was like, she was like, the associate backup cheerleader wannabe. You gotta understand the school, the competition for anything right. was our our football team went to state every single year. Our brain bowl went to state or regionals every single year. Our swim team went to nationals every single year. So the competition and everywhere was just intense. Yeah. Um and so she was like I I am sort of on the cheerleading team because I came in three behind the last alternate. You know, <laughs> if I can kill five of them, I can actually be a cheerleader. Right. Um, <laughs> and for some reason, this guy just decided to F with the fish because he was the nerd. And, and I'm like, dude, don't come unarmed to a battle of wits because it wasn't physical bullying. They were, the school was just intense about breaking, cutting down the physical bullying. And it was like, he's going to pick on me. And I'm like, you don't have the brains to be able to do that. Um, and it was only like the first semester and then it was done. But Connor, I think I described Connor and it was his physical description. Um, and that's, that's who it was based on. Uh, so Jamal Swain was supposed to be based on somebody, but then Lydia took that in a different direction. It's a fantastic direction. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, everybody else, usually I have somebody that I base that character on. Right. Ronnie. Ronnie was based on somebody from my daughter's school. Um, who Ronnie is worse than Donnie was. Donnie, Ronnie, uh, but Donnie was just the the super obnoxious nerd, you know. And I tried not to be. I I had a tendency to annoy people because I I, I come across as kind of supercilious, right? Um, and I don't I don't even mean to. Um, but Donnie was just, uh, you know, he very much was the. I'm better than you are because I'm so smart. Right. And so I I used that character for Ronnie, that character type for Ronnie. Hmm. But most of these are not I usually have a tendency to base things on people. Um, you know, the whole thing about nobody is represented here. No, that's not true. Right. Have I used you yet, Griffin? I think I used you at least. No, before. no, the the only thing that you've gotten from me was the uh uh 
was the uh, uh, in Black Tide Rising. Right, yeah. right. Your your sergeant. Yeah, my sergeant. Yeah. back yeah. in the day. Yeah, because that was just that was. I know he was trying to freak me out, but I was actually doing a tour for Ghost. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a fun introduction. Real, real quick, talk about that. <laughs> well, come on. So uh, it was the first time we'd actually met, and I, t- I told John that if he wanted to, I'd give him a tour of the uh, the district station. Uh, oh, by I'm the way, I'm sick as a freaking dog. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to give him a, a, a tour of the station, and we walked through, and, and uh, this particular uh, lieutenant, now he's now retired as a lieutenant, uh, was uh, he, he led the pride parade, uh, the black and uh, blue contingent of the pride parade. So the, and he's a little guy that used to call him Mr. Moneybags, you know, from Monopoly because he looked like he needed a monocle and that was it. He could have done that. And he always tried to like shock people that came in to visit because he was, uh, he grew up in a very, uh, like a hyper conservative Catholic uh, family out of Chicago with lots of, lots of money and uh, was kind of kicked out uh, for his proclivities. And uh, he ended up being uh, uh, on duty as the uh, one of the desk sergeants that night. And I introduced John, I said, was one of my favorite authors, what do you, what are you written? And he, uh, John kind of told him a little bit and they, he's like, what? And he got very interested in, the, in that uh, whole thing. And then he tried to shock John and John's like, no, I just got done telling you. <laughs> all the research I had to do for this particular uh, series of books. Yeah. So, you're not going to be able to shock me by coming across as very, very gay while you're wearing body armor. You're not. Okay. It's just, no. Yeah. So they're, they're all, I've, I've seen leather parades going all the way back to the 1980s. Uh, I do not care. Um, back before I joined the army, uh, just before I joined the army, I dropped out of school. Uh, I didn't have any money. I, you know, worked in a, worked in a minimum wage job. My sister had just come out of the closet. So she's going around all the gay bars and she's buying. So I mean, I spent like three months before I went to the army. And the only bars I went to were gay bars because Sally's buying. And, and they have the uh, best music. Um, no, they were pretty much like every other bar that they went to in the early 1980s. I mean, they were just pickup bars. And I discovered that back then, um, I was beyond normally a gay magnet. Gay guys just found me insanely attractive. I mean, like way beyond. I was I was the prettiest girl at the bar. And I, I one of the things that was good I don't about know. I don't I, know, John. They might have just made you feel that way. No, 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 Griff. I really, really was. It was, it was bizarre, um, and it, but it gave me an expanded understanding of what it is like to be a very pretty female, and have to deal with that all the time. Um, which is one of the things that I wanted to build into, which got built into the book, yeah. is that Lynn suddenly discovers, especially once she starts working out all. And she's constantly exercising. Lynn discovers that between these and the rest, people actually find her very physically attractive, and she's not used to that. Right. She has no fucking idea what to do. She has no clue. Um, just as I had no clue in these gay bars 
Um, You're just here for the free booze. Gotcha. I'm just here for the free booze. So, drink. That's why you ain't going to get me drunk to take advantage. It isn't going to happen. Okay. So, uh, moving from there to to from exploring the the, the bars of the eighties, <laughs> getting back it's to the bars. Uh, the 80s. The, to this particular not well, yes. This is pre <laughs> So I mean, this was back when it was just bad. So go ahead, yeah. So, which character would you want on your side on an HD Hunter team? Well, Lynn, absolutely. Obviously, Lynn. She's um, obviously the best. Right. One of the things that one of the things about this book is people will be like, "Oh, she's she's like a super character." Because she is. I mean, she goes from being fantastic at FPS to being absolutely fantastic at ARG. And most people are not good at both. Um, but one of the things about uh, technically the term is romance, a, a romantic archetype. Um, but you call them adventure novels or heroic character novels. Heroic characters are not normal people. They're not the people that you run into every day. They may appear to be the everyman. Mike O'Neill appeared to be the everyman, but he was not. Most people died in the environment that Mike was in, but he was in fact a superman disguised as him. Lynn was a superwoman for this particular thing disguised as an everyone. Um, you, you're not... You can write a book about somebody who just isn't anybody, and people, a lot of people will praise it, like Ulysses, um, or uh, Death of a Salesman, okay? But while I write everyman books, I don't write them about, you know, a person who's just going through the day-to-day life, but they're not really good. Right. Um so Lynn is who you want to have on your team. Yeah. <clears throat> but she's going to be running the team, and you're going to be... I mean, that's literally people in the FPS war... What is it? It's not Warhammer. It's uh, Warmonger. Yeah, Warmonger, um, yeah. In Warmonger, rich people pay her big bucks to be on their Warmonger team because they want to win. Yeah. Um, you know, she's 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 a merc. Um, or at least... Uh, Larry the Snake is more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the other one that I would have on, want to have on the team is not Ronnie, even though he would be very good. I would have Edgar. I was about to say the same thing. Like, Edgar is just fun. He's just fun to play with, and he's enthusiastic. I have yet to meet a Samoan that I didn't like. <laughs> I, I, it, you know, that, that sounds racist, but I have never met a Samoan I didn't like. I didn't, I've never met a Samoan that wasn't really, really competent at something. Um, they have a tendency to be very, very likable, very friendly, very competent at something, and somebody that the last thing you want to do is piss them off. Right. Uh, actually, it's usually the last thing you do in your life is piss off yeah. the boat. <laughs> so uh, this, is, this is kind of a connected question, but would it be the same person in the real that you would want on your, on your side as an ally or a, a buddy? Um, can we pick people off the TD Hunter, off Lynn's TD Hunter team? Because we can pick anyone. I'd pick yeah, Steve Riker yeah. in second. Yeah, absolutely. Any of the characters from the books at this point. 
Um, for what? For what? For just he said he said and in the real. So if like, I'm starting a business, or just as a buddy or an ally, somebody you know, you're dropped in a top, uh, a hot spot. You wanted somebody on your well, side. It's here's the thing. It's always, um, you can't just say who would you want. Okay, um, who would I want if I've got an electrical problem? I'm not absolutely certain. Okay. Who would I want if I was dropped on a desert island? Steve Riker, followed by Edgar. And Maybe Lynn Matilda? would most be along. Maybe Matilda Raven because she's a nurse. Huh? Or Matilda because she's a nurse. Matilda yeah. because she's a nurse. You know, um, if I was suddenly thrust into the public limelight and need a publicist, um, and I couldn't choose. Jamal, I would choose his daughter. Yeah, I, right? I like I like Mr. Thomas. Well, he, he Mr. Thomas is, is a fun character. He is uh, very Mr. elderly too, so he didn't like immediately come to mind in like a have your back, you know, like like fighting kind of way. But yeah, Mr. Thomas is pretty awesome. Rube doesn't have a male; doesn't have a father father's dad. Yeah. Um, so when I originally envisioned the books and started writing them. I actually put Mr. Thomas in as a father figure. Gotcha. Um, and he didn't quite expand the way that I planned, but he didn't expand the way that I planned when I was writing. Right. I, I understand that I will sit and ideate a story over and over and over again, sometimes for years, that will go off in fractals in so many different directions. And then eventually I sit down and I start typing and it is none of the stories that I, I envision. Right. It's a completely different story. Yeah. Um, when the ink hits the page, as they say. Huh? When the ink hits the page. When the ink hits the page, it goes off in a different direction. Right. Um, the substack that I'm doing right now, I've been thinking about that general world off and on for two or three years. Um, uh, under Graveyard Sky. That went, I mean, that was a character event. Um, that was a superhero universe, um, which is variants of what happened in uh, in Black Tide are the future of what I'm currently doing in Substack. Right. Um, that, that there are pieces of things that didn't happen in Black Tide because it was just a a play zombie apocalypse, right. as opposed to um, a breach between worlds with like kaiju and monsters and all this other stuff. Okay, <laughs> um, the Black Tide Rising universe was a Carrington event at one point, and that one got so freaking grim and so messed up. I mean. So messed up. I'm sure many people would pay to see that, John, even though it didn't. The coolest character in the whole thing was the hand. And even I did not know who the hand was. And the hand was a person. And one of my possibilities for who he was, when he's explaining to one of his captors why he does what he does, is that. We have lost all technology and all civilization. 
And we have 2% of our population knows how to grow food. In a situation where 80% needs know how to grow food. So we have to eliminate 95% of the population. Yeah, that gets pretty grim pretty quick. Oh, yes, very much so. so. It, he put himself in a situation where he could create, he could do genocide. Very, very specific, very aggressive genocide. And keep only a limited number of people alive. He's killing in excess of 95% of the people that he catches. And because I'm the good guy. Right. I am saving the world from no better, itself. no better bad guy than yeah. the guy who thinks he's. I, I am saving the world from itself. And here's the thing: the way that he, the way that he explains it, you sit there and you go, if all of these people hit this valley, it will be unable to produce food. Right. They will kill all of the farmers trying to get to the food. Yeah. So by sitting here and killing all of them as they come here, I am saving civilization. So, yeah, that so was wanna, what Under the Graveyard Sky was going to be. Right. In comparison, a zombie apocalypse is relatively less grim. Relatively mild in comparison. Yeah. Benign, yes. Yeah. Well, and also that, you know, most of your writing has, has that hope at the end of it, right? It, it has mm-hmm. that, you know, things are really bad and you still have that uh, lighthouse at the, at the far end of the ocean to try, kind of bring you home. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I see what you did there, Griffin. You were going to say light at the end of the tunnel, but you said lighthouse instead, and then had to. Well, the the uh, uh, so one of the things that I'm ideating right now, and this does have to do with what we're talking about, is actually not a zombie apocalypse. It's actually a vampire. Um, Fun times. Um, my favorite, but, my favorite vampire movie. No, um, my, my favorite vampire movie is Life. Oh, which one? Life, huh? Life Force. Never seen it. 1980s. Uh, it has like every English actor in it. Uh, it's a. It's both a vampire and a uh, zombie movie. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, it's space vampires. It's literally oh, the, the space vampires. It was a novel originally, and I think that was the title of it. Was okay. Space vampires. <laughs> so um, check it out. 1980s. Very very good. Right up your alley, John. Well, the the universe actually started off as a fanfic of supernatural. Um. And then somehow Harry Dresden got drafted in. Oh, gosh. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, so Supernatural crossed with Harry Dresden. And then at a certain point, there's a, a there's it's the war between the White Council and the Dark Council. But part of it is a massive vampire outbreak um, staged by the Dark Council. Um, and the main and the thing about it is if I write this, the first book will be called to light a candle. Because when you study magic, first thing they, they teach you is the Fuego spell, how to light a candle. You know, in Harry Potter, when they're, you know, the first thing they do is like Levitato or whatever. First thing you do is you learn Wingardium to light a candle. Wingardium Leviosa. Yeah, right. You just, you learn to light a candle. It's just yeah. wait, right? Um, so that's actually a, one of the reasons I'm thinking about writing it is because just to have the book that has the title to light a candle. Right. <laughs> referencing back to under a graveyard sky, right? right? Yeah. It's hard to light a candle, at least if it's dark instead. Right. Um, and because I've 
this this one has actually gotten really fun, you know. But I've got two series that I'm already working on besides the one that I'm working on with Lydia. So yeah. potentially other stuff that may still be under contract. At least that's what Tony mumbled at me when, or what you mumbled at me when you originally took TD Hunter to Tony. That mumble mumble. There's stuff I'm supposed to have already turned in. Mumble mumble. Oh, you think? Oh, yeah. oh wow! Oh wow! Uh, yeah, let's not let's not go there. <laughs> so, um, so going back to the uh, book we're here to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, we're writers. It's like herding cats. Oh yeah, totally. And uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm sure your fans are as well because it all goes into the pot, right? It comes out in in these uh, novels and service. Um, so. Who would you avoid like the plague and why? We already kind of covered Connor for you, John. So this is more for Lydia. <clears throat> um, well, Elena, and honestly, I would avoid Elena before Connor, like every day of the week. Right. Being and the reason being, Connor knows Connor is smart. Like he's an asshole and selfish and devious and cutthroat, but he's smart and he like he knows how to, you know, eat at least act in a mature manner as long as it's, you know, achieving his desire more or less, you know, right. whereas Elena is just a child. She's just a rich, pitiable, immature. Yeah. Tyrant. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I would avoid her like the plague any day of the week and I just would want nothing to do with her. And it's sad. Like, obviously she holds responsibility for who she is, just become and and he makes every day, but also you know she has had a very hard time of it in similar ways to Ronnie, um, and for that reason, like Ronnie also struggles to be a decent human being. He's not an immature little squalling child, um, so you know, kind of sad. But also she made the choice, and I don't have anything to do with her. So right, well, cool. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. It was their turn through the security checkpoint. Hannah slid down the window and handed out her NSA ID. Durek handed his across via Hannah. We're looking for a human male, Hannah said in rough, slow, low elvish. The girl has no ID. She is our prisoner. We are responsible for her. While they talked, Tinker pieced together a plea for help in high elvish. The elfin border guard glanced in the window at her. She mouthed the plea, 
just in case she didn't get the chance to talk to an elf at the hospice. Where do you seek this human male? The elf asked Hannah, gazing intently at Tinker. The hospice. The guard went off with their papers into the guardhouse. Tinker whispered, Come on, come on, crossing the fingers on both hands. That simple magic didn't work, if it ever really worked. The guard returned and waved them through. Hannah drove to the hospice and parked. Tinker's stomach churned nervously as they walked in. She needed to do this quickly because the NSA were about to find out that she had been the only human ever treated here. She picked the brawniest looking of the elves in the foyer as the NSA agents checked stride, apparently scanning about for an equivalent of a reception desk. She locked eyes with the elf and said quickly, Please, help me. I am in grave danger. Wolf who rules. Durek jerked her back and slapped a hand over her mouth. What the hell did you say? Hannah produced her ID and was saying carefully, This one is in our care and might be charged with crimes. She is young and foolish. Tinker hadn't thought of what the elves might do in response to her plea. She expected demands for identification and long legal proceedings. She was stunned as the elf unsheathed his sword in a ring of metal. Durek reacted instantly, shoving her aside to pull his own weapon. Hannah shouted, Drop it! Drop it! Tinker scrambled to one side, swearing. This wasn't what she'd planned. Still, she'd be an idiot not to take advantage of the opportunity. She darted through the door and into the maze of hallways. What had happened to her life? One minute it was all so sane and orderly, and now look at her. They say that the elves really couldn't curse anyone. Elves could use their magic to turn a person into a toad, cause someone to become incredibly uncoordinated, or drop one's inhibitions like a six-pack of Iron City beer. But really rotten, everything turns against you bad luck? They couldn't do. So why did it seem that someone had cursed her? Tinker skittered on the slick stone to round the corner, then yelped as she came face to face with armed men in EIA uniforms. EIA? How did they get here so fast? Were they real EIA? She tried to turn. Her stocking feet went out from under her, and she went sliding directly into them. In a frictionless universe, objects in motion stay in motion. Durek and Briggs came around the corner, and there was sudden excited shouting. She looked up to find the EIA and the NSA pointing guns at one another. NSA! Durek shouted. Put down your weapons! EIA! The others yelled back. Drop it! Tinker edged toward the closest doorway. No one really seemed to be paying attention to her, but then she didn't have a gun. This girl is in our protective custody, Briggs growled. Drop the guns, the EIA or EIA lookalikes shouted. You're not doing anything until we see proper identification and clearance papers. Tinker bolted through the door. Behind her, Durek didn't seem to notice she had fled. This is code black. Nor had the EIA. I don't give diddly what color it is. This is Elf Home. After thoroughly losing herself, she slid through a door and discovered she was at a dead end in an empty patient room. She could hear booted feet echoing through the halls, rapidly approaching her, cutting off other possible exits. 
Hiding looked like her only course. Other than the bed, nightstand, and guest chair, the only piece of furniture was a large wardrobe. She opened the door and found that the bottom was taken up with drawers. What kind of wardrobe was this? The upper part was one tall shelf, about the size of a dress shirt. Oh, well. She scrambled up onto the shelf and closed the door with her fingernails. The pounding of her heart covered all sound until someone entered the room in long, booted strides. The footsteps continued straight into the wardrobe. The door opened, and Derek Maynard studied her. Hovering over his shoulder was a locate spell. There are times I hate magic, Tinker sulked, remaining tucked on the top shelf. You are a hard girl to keep pinned down, Maynard motioned her out. Unfortunately, not hard enough. She reluctantly unfolded and swung down off the shelf. Maynard reached into his pocket and produced a bright yellow rectangle. Gum? I've been told not to take candy from strangers. He raised one eyebrow as if saying, get real, or how wise, or something truly witty. Tinker supposed that was one of the benefits of keeping one's mouth shut. People made up better dialogue for you than you yourself could imagine. Then again, the trick would never work for her. She couldn't stay quiet. She scowled at him and took the offered piece. The gum filled her mouth with sweetness and ran counter to her banging heart. Juicy fruit. She identified the brand. They say that elves love this stuff. Juicy fruit and peanut butter. Maynard unwrapped a piece for himself. I have always wondered if it's a cultural thing or something more genetically based. Gods know there are human cultures that have weirder tastes. She shrugged not knowing or caring. Why were they standing there trading inane remarks? If Maynard had tracked her down, did it mean that he was going to turn her over to the NSA and correct all their misconceptions? Maynard had been studying her while making what seemed to be a deliberate show of chewing the gum. He reached out now to rub the triangular mark between her eyebrows. Where did this come from? Windwolf? She jerked her head away. It occurred to her that if any human knew what it was... Maynard would. What does it mean? The elves run a rigid caste system, but sometimes a high-ranked elf can elevate a lower-ranked elf. He marks them with a dow. Maynard tapped her forehead again, and they become part of his caste, with all rights and privileges. Why'd Windwolf do it to me? Why didn't you ask him at the time? I didn't notice the mark until after he left. I haven't seen him since. Ah. Maynard murmured, and nothing more. He had been dealing with elves too long. Maynard was nearly as obscure as they were. It seemed as if they would spend all day simply chewing gum. So are you going to turn me over to the NSA? Can't, Maynard said. Can't, won't, shan't. By the rules of the treaty, no elf of any caste can be moved to Earth by any human agency for any reason. Rights and privileges... Maynard nodded. Well, the day was suddenly looking up, but it seemed too good to be true. Tinker tested her luck. I don't think the NSA will see it that way. I don't give a fuck, Maynard said. Lord Winwolf will not allow it. And that's all I care about. I'm walking a delicate line with the elves. I'm not going to piss the Viceroy off to make two gun-happy American agents' jobs easy. What the hell is a viceroy? 
you, girl, need a lesson in politics. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judgewitz. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.